cried to you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a blessed day you have given us today, allowing us to come here in your presence to worship you and give thanks to you and what you've done. Thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for your word, your voice, and for the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts to let us hear you. Lord, we ask humbly that you would guide our hearts, our minds, and emotions. Let your truth be declared by your servant and decrease who I am as a man. Let us recognize your love for us and how that shapes us and how that guides us every day. We rest all in your hands and in your son's wonderful name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Renewal. Just to reintroduce myself, my name is David Kim, and I serve with college ministry and youth ministry here at Renewal Mainline. And I've been given with this wonderful privilege to speak on the very last Sunday of the year. That's right, it is the very last Sunday. 2018 is gone. Cannot believe how fast it went by. It's been filled with various kinds of joys and celebrations for me, but as well as... um, sorrows and regrets. Even this day, this week, this past week, it was filled with literally new lives, congratulations, and also with the loss of loved ones. As we all get to reflect on the past year and seeing God's provision, His goodness, despite all that's happened, today's text, Psalm 30, provides us with the necessary biblical spectacle that allows us to reflect on the highs and lows of our lives and rightly allocate where they belong. So I outlined today's sermon into three points, dismay, deliverance, and divine response. Dismay, deliverance, and divine response. First point is that our lives are filled with dismay, turmoil, and agony. And because of that, second point, we must ask for God's deliverance. And the last point, when we ask God's deliverance, we find peace in joyfully remembering the divine response to our request. So the first point that we see today uh, is that our lives are filled with dismay. The Study Bible explains today's text that the theme of the whole psalm is one of personal thanksgiving for God's repeated care and deliverance over the course of a life. And the title, which reads, A Psalm of David, A Song at the Dedication of the Temple, makes a sound situation of David's experience, the background, and the worshipers can relate to their own experiences. The singer of this psalm thankfully and worshipfully looks back to the occasion of healing and helping granted him by God, making this psalm all the more applicable for us today as we spend the final week of the year 2018 spending time to reflect the past year. And this psalm is divided into three portions, verse 1 to 3, verse 4 and 5, and then 6 to 12, very uh, unequally. Verse 1 to 3 does a praising for God who has rescued the singer from sickness and shoal. Verse 4 and 5 as a call to all people to join in the praise And the creed-like explanation in verse 5 and then verse 6 to 12 as the description of the healing and help, together with concluding praise. So as we follow the psalmist in this 
singing and praising God, we get to see the reason for worship, the context to the worship, and what that does to all of us here. David starts the psalm in verse 1 singing, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. The reason for David's worship of God is because God has drawn him up from something. We'll see later where he's drawn up from. In verse 2, when we see David saying, you healed me. From this, we may think that this, his suffering may have been caused by a desperate illness. He was sick. And to what point? In verse 3, he says, O Lord, you have brought me up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. He was so sick that he felt like he was drawn off from Sheol. So what is Sheol? It's a poetic and evocative language of a grave. It's a grave. Throughout the Bible, it's used to highlight the tragedy of death. Not just any death, but death that silences a man's worship. A death that shatters your plans. A death that cuts off from God and man. That ends us. And David's saying he was sick to the point of death. It was as if David was plucked out of the line of those currently waiting to enter Shoal. Then he breaks out in worship in verse 4 and 5. He says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Then in verse 6 and 7, he describes more of what his state of mind looked like right before he became dismayed. Verse 6, he says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. Here is, we see a very interesting description here. He was drenched in a false sense of confidence, but not in God, not a confidence in God, but it was a confidence by a rejection of God and a faith in self-power, saying, no one can touch me. I am good without anything. There's a tension between verse 5 and verse 7. Verse 5, it said, his favor is for a lifetime. Everything is secure eternally. Verse 7, now he's saying, when God hides his face, David immediately falls into dismay. He confesses that it's been God who, who makes his mountain strong. It was God who provided any sense of security. It was God's grace, his mercy, that provided that for David, and he's claiming that he forgot. When he was on the top of the mountain, at least when he felt like it, he forgot the moment God took away his mercy, he cries out that he immediately was dismayed. There's this very intentional, sudden shift from a mountaintop to the lowest shoal. It was a very intentional imagery that we could relate to. Our lives are filled with these sudden shift from feeling like you're on the top of the mountain to going down to the pit in an instance. What's an example? I was uh, spending time through finding some illustrations, and yesterday uh, I came to witness one with my own eyes uh, to that very shift from joy, mountaintop joy, to 
hell-like dismay. It was my son, my four-year-old son. I just came home from a cafe working on my sermon, and Sean was running around partially because he was so happy that I was home. That side was precious. And another part was he was literally running away from his nap time. He was running away from my wife, and, and he was literally leaping with joy. Then he slipped on the wooden stairway, and he kicked the edge of the stair step with his shin. And I had to witness that, that leaping with joy to agony of hell. <laughs> and any of you who has experienced that pain can relate to it very physically. as one of the most painful things in a mundane life. I had to see the whole face change in a slow-mo. It was gruesome for me. Although it's a quite mundane example, there are definitely other examples. In fact, countless examples in our lives where we experience dismay, especially from that mountaintop to the fall, to shoal. Whenever we go through any physical discomfort, we could relate to that, where we remember only when you have that pain. When you twist your ankle, you remember only then that the day before, it was a new day, and you didn't realize that you had two healthy ankles. And now, all you wish is just healthy ankles to walk. When you have high fever, you could recall the last time you had a high fever. I feel like everyone here has experienced it. When you're shivering with sweating bullets, chilling, burning body ache, just beating up your body, it lets you physically experience the pain of shoal. You wish it was a day before when you didn't have a fever, remembering how great sunlight was that warmth of air was, and how little we realized how great that felt. And the experience of shoal doesn't have to be a physical one. Shoal is the power of sin, basically. The effect of sin. It's the state of where sin drags us down to. The powerful sense of hopelessness. A deep sorrow, agony, a bottomless pit, so deep that an idea of rescue is just unthinkable. That is Shoal. That's what David went through, King David, and also me. This is something that we can say that everyone can experience. Everyone does experience. In fact, our lives are filled with this agony. No one escapes the pain from sin and misery. It definitely can take many forms. It can take a form of a fight between loved ones, a car accident, diagnoses of various kinds, of cancer, injustice or just violence done to you, or simply a loss of the loved one. Psalm 30 addresses the attitudes and perceptions in our hearts among these kinds of times of dismay. Life is filled with dismay. I have my own experiences of shoal, and it's a bit embarrassing to share, but I feel like I'm called to share. Um, I faced a shoal-like dismay every midterm and finals week, and not even occasionally, sad to say. I feel like every time I faced that agony, minimum of two per semester, I almost praised God that I never had finals, and remember I have ordination exams licensure exam. It's coming. And um, 
I've been suffering for the longest time in my life from what I call a modern epidemic called chronic procrastination. And uh, at any kind of encounter to a stressful due date, I would face this experience. As I've lived a life constantly reflecting and analyzing what that looks like, what I've gone through, I came to several observations to what I go through. One was that I was always tempted with immediate and temporary satisfactions. That's what's on the hand all the time. Those small satisfactions, temptations to satisfy immediate pleasures that can substitute my duties. It didn't have to be a specific thing. It just had to be one. Various different kinds of entertainments. They were, for instance, addicting uh, computer games to anime or just rereading for the ninth time of Harry Potter. I'm not that much of a fan of Harry Potter. <laughs> I enjoy it, but not to a point of several people I know. It didn't have to take the form of entertainment to attract me away from my duties. Some finals weeks, I would just find myself in the deepest pondering of thoughts. I would think about life. Why do I live? What's the point of life? What's the air for? Or I would write journals, or sometimes fictions. I thought I had the gift of writing. And I became the greatest philosopher of all the age only during finals week. And when the finals weeks were over, the innovative thoughts would disappear instantly. Sadly, the agony I went through emotionally was real. Every second, every minute, hour ticks by nearing to the due date, I would fall deeper and deeper into a sense of hopelessness and self-loathing torment, just hurting myself, questioning, why am I that way? Why can't I just do it? I would despise myself, asking why I'm lazy, why I'm so sinful, why can't I do it? The worst part was that this wasn't a one-time thing. It was a cycle, literally. It seemed like a cycle that never ended. It seemed like I never changed, continuously watching myself never changing. The cycle of frustration and hatred, I found myself in the deep pit of misery. In the midst of this, Thankfully, the Bible allows me to not stop at the surface level of my experience. The scripture allows me to dig deeper and identify a few idolatrous sources that worked foundationally within me. One was, and I realized this too late, but one was an arrogance faith, arrogant faith in my own ability, my intelligence, not to blame my parents solely, but as long as I remember, my parents would always tell me, you are a smart person. You were born smart, but you just are not doing it. <laughs> I thought I had the highest IQ. I just never had the test yet, so I don't know yet. <laughs> I truly believe, maybe I still do believe it right now, essentially, I am a smart born person. I have I have the ability to do these works in such short period of time because I can. Another idolatrous idea that worked fundamentally in my heart, at least in that very instance, is the belief that I truly need those things. I really need those things to satisfy my needs. The immediate sense of entertainment. I need to play Tetris right now. I would get in, uh, 
very short term of arthritis on my fourth finger here because I was doing this too much. That's what I realized, um, this is serious. This is what I would think um, one would call as the difference between my confessional faith versus a functional faith. In other words, what I confess to others, and including myself, what I say I believe in, versus what actually works in my life, what I actually believe in and live by. When I say I would confess to others and even to myself that my life belongs to Christ, and the goal of my life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I would memorize that, confess it to God, but functionally, however, I would live according to the faith as something else. That I would live for that theology, that belief, that my life belongs to me. At least for that moment, what truly determines what I need is what I determine to be real. What I need, what I enjoy, my glory and my enjoyment forever. It was sad. What I live by should show otherwise and bring in various other things that substitute God. Our idolatries do certainly bring us to shoal. Our idols bring us to shoal. What is yours? What is your shoal? What brings you down to the utmost, utmost dismay? The reason why David uses the word shoal is because it stands for a metaphor. It stands for something. For me, it stood for my cycle of always choosing temporary pleasures and satisfactions always pushing things off to satisfy my flesh, stands for how I can never break that cycle no matter how high I try. It stands for my idolatry to constantly make decisions for myself, my comfort, my pleasure, and not God's pleasure, not God's glory. Isn't that just powerful? Isn't sin powerful? That desire inside of us that continually chooses sin, continually makes self-centered decisions, continually want what's best for me, and not God, not others. That destroys us. Sin destroys us. Has there been resolutions that you've, you've been trying to make every year, renewal every year, to be nicer to your spouse a little more, or to spend more time praying for your unbelieving friends? or family, or to start building intentional relationship with God's word and prayer? Have you experienced the suffering of shoal, of you choosing sin over God? When David found himself in such agony, that's where he cried out to God for deliverance. That's the second point, deliverance. The first instance of grace that we see here is that David recognizes this. He recognizes his shoal and he identifies it. And we must do that too. We shouldn't sit here and think, I don't apply here. I don't have shoal. I don't have patterns for destruction in my life. I'm not the one that this psalm is talking about. That's David saying, I'm on the top of the mountain. No one can bring me down. We must identify our shoal, confess it, Recognize it. And then, like we see in David here, we must cry out for help. When we find ourselves in dismay, we must plea 
for God's deliverance. We need to cry out. Let's look at verse 2. David says, O Lord my God, I cry to you for help. Let's look at verse 8 and verse 10. David says, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Going back to verse 6 and 7, David, seeing how he was only protected by God's mercy and not by his own will or power, this awareness of vulnerability leads David to seek deliverance and God's mercy. And when we see the Old Testament, it's rich in showing how Israel calls for God's deliverance. Israel's always crying, crying out for help when they find themselves in the utmost hopelessness. Without desperation, there really is no cry for help. In other words, whenever Israel became desperate and became hopeless, they cried out. In Exodus, we see how Israel cries out to God for his deliverance from the bondage of the Egyptians. And Judges, the nation cries out all the time as they find themselves in helpless state. And God raises judges to save them and lead them. And especially here in the book of Psalms, not just Psalm 30, but throughout the whole series, it is filled with crying out for help. It's pretty loud, a cry for mercy. What are some ways we cry out to God? If I take you back to my personal show moments, my finals week, I also have to confess to you that my crying out to God even wasn't a good resemblance of David's cry. Um, the farther I was to the due date, the more distanced I was in seeking God's help. Instead of crying out to God, I resorted to other things. I would constantly think to myself, I'll try it harder next time. I came up with various methodologies. What if I quit Maple Story? Maybe then I'll be delivered. It's daunting how creative you can get in finding other things to worship. Even when I do cry out to God, oftentimes, they were empty and repetitive rituals for me, saying sorry to God of how I failed and I didn't do as well as I could. I would ask for more strength. God, give me strength, more strength than I already had. Now I realize that I was working with that idea. My idol stayed the same, myself, my ability, power. Do you cry out to God? Do you cry for help? Or instead of crying out to God, what do you resort to? Do you resort to resolving to try harder next time? Methods and not God? Doesn't that show us that we functionally believe in those things as our Savior? That your methods are your Savior? That your friends are your God, not God? Then what's the hope in crying out? What's the hope if those things are not the Savior? That's the third point for today. Divine response. The hope in crying out is that we joyfully remember God's response, the divine response to our plea. We can look at God's faithfulness throughout the scriptures. All the instances that we, that we talked about just previously about whenever Israel called out to God, he saved them. Here, in the most immediate context, in David's case, he sings in verse 5, 
For his anger is but for a moment, but, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. He concludes Psalm 30 with this joyful memory of deliverance realized. He says his mourning has turned into dancing. And God's here, God's depicted as replacing the psalmist of mourning clothes with festal garment. And he cannot keep himself silent. David breaks forth in a song of thanksgiving because he realized where it came from, the power of salvation. Let's take some time looking at verse 5, that word, the use of the word anger. That's quite unfamiliar in our generation, isn't it? Anger of God. This is actually very relevant for us because this anger is God's anger against sin, his anger against injustice, anger against our idolatry. If you remember Romans 1, verse 18, we see God's wrath against sin. As a form of punishment in verse 24, we see how we were given up to that wrath in our sinful passion. It was a form of punishment. This is God's righteous fury against injustice, and that hurts us. And yet, in this psalm, we see hope. Because though we feel the suffering of Shoal today, God ensures that joy comes in the morning. Because he will deliver you from your shoal. He promises you that. If you look at other parts of the scripture for God's faithfulness, it's plentiful. As David himself finds himself constantly battling for peace, he is enthroned and ultimately uniting the whole kingdom. As the Israel nation turns back to God all the time, God graciously receives them back and dwells with them. There are countless instances of how God delivers his people. But you know that when we end here, if we end here, that's not the gospel. That's not the salvation we're talking about ultimately, isn't it? The true hope, the ultimate location of where we see the divine response to our cry is on the cross. As we have been discussing about the experience of, of those sudden shift from mountaintop joy to shoal, we can think about the original example of that. The first instance of that which was Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden to the fall of humanity. It went from their glorious union with God and quite literally a sense of walking with God. But because of sin, for them to be disconnected from God's presence, only left with sin and misery. And where was the hope in that? The hope was in the cross. The hope is in the gospel. When we find ourselves in the midst of Shoal, our hope is in Jesus Christ, in his saving works. The anger, the wrath of God, all taken away by our Savior, he who did not deserve death, descended into the bottomless pit. He was the one abandoned without hope. He was betrayed. He was flogged, mocked, and beaten. He, he cried out to God to 
but he was the one that God actually turned away from. And he actually died on the cross. But we know in hindsight that there was joy in the morning. The third morning, there was joy. He rose again. He defeated Shoal. That resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, that's actually step one of the process of our freedom from Shoal. It's the receipt. It's the guarantee that God will carry out our liberation from our shoal and sin. It shows us that we too, one day, will be like Jesus in his resurrection. And that includes the process until that day. We call that sanctification. And that's something quite difficult to grasp, isn't it? How already... The victory is given to us, but not yet. I think a helpful illustration could be um, just imagining that you're given with a really big, long book. A really, really big book. So long that you can't read the whole thing in one sitting. So what do we do? We skim through the beginning and the ending, intro to conclusion. And what happens? Then we can know sort of what would happen in the middle. Not fully, but we do get the picture. If that book is actually our life with Christ. If that's the title, then the scripture for us works as the introduction and the conclusion. We know what happened in the beginning. We know what happens at the end. We know that Jesus Christ died for us and he took away the bondage of death. We know that one day he is coming back again and restore all to its rightful place, which is according to God's kingdom. So now we're living the life that's in between that book. So what does that look like? That's the sanctification. Maybe this um, C.S. Lewis illustration might be of help to us. Looking back in one sense, the road back to God is a road of moral effort of trying harder and harder. But in another sense, it is not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads up to the vital moment at which you turn to God and say, you must do this. I can't. Do not, I implore you, start asking yourselves, have I reached that moment? Do not sit down and start watching your own mind to see if it is coming along. That puts a man quite on the wrong track. When the most important things in our lives happen, we quite often do not know at the moment what is going on. A man does not always say to himself, hello, I'm growing up. This is often only when he looks back that he realizes what has happened and recognizes it as what people call growing up. You can see it even in simple matters. A man who starts anxiously watching to see whether he is going to sleep is very likely to remain wide awake. As well, the thing I am talking of now may not happen to everyone in the sudden flash as it did to St. Paul or Bunyan, it may be so gradual that no one could ever point to a particular hour or even a particular year. And what matters is the nature of the change in itself, not how we feel, feel while it is happening. It is the change from being confident about our own efforts to the state in which we despair of doing anything for ourselves and leave it to God. As I conclude the message, I would like to ask you this once more. Do you cry out to God? 
when you find yourself in the utmost agony, do you cry out to God for help? Or is there something else that you cry out to? Do you try to resolve it on your own methods? Not in a hopeless cry, but do you plead to God worshipfully like David with the right understanding of God's sufficient and promised salvation? The world could easily and quickly define the idea of peace as absence of agony, hardships in life. But we know by the revelation of God's truth that it's not because of the absence of agony that we worship God. It is precisely because of Shoal and more importantly, what God does with that, we praise God. Because we know that God promises salvation and because he is faithful that we are thankful and we have hope. It is because we see the cross, we are hopeful. But God is a gracious God. He doesn't leave us just with the promise of the ultimate salvation and say, just wait, just endure. He actually shows a glimpse of that salvation to us in our daily lives, a reality of that truth, but a glimpse. Our days are filled with God's mercy, if you think about it. Every time we wake up without that fever which haunted the whole previous night, we experience the joy that came in the morning. Every time we see a reconciliation from a long, hardened relationship, we see that the joy comes with the morning when we see a growth in our journey of sanctification. As small as it is, we worship God. And we must worship God for his faithfulness. Every time we see the cross, every time we break bread, every time we eat and digest the word of God and be fed and be nourished and admonished by it, we praise God and leap with joy because we understand where our hope is. As we, as we live the last two days of the year of 2018, yeah, we can apply this message from Psalm 30. As we approach another new year, many people, including myself, may think, it would be just a new blank slate. What can I do this new year? Let's start fresh. Let's make these methods, these, all these resolutions that to hold on to. But reflecting back on our past year, in light of Psalm 30, why don't we reflect on God's mercy? How has God shown you his mercy? Very importantly, what has been your shoal. What is the entangling power of sin that ensnares you and drags you to the bottomless pit away from our union with God? What are some of the confessed faith versus functional faith that we need to lay down to God and plead for his mercy? And please don't be disheartened by the slowness of our sanctification. My son, one minute after he slipped and fell, from that agony when I rubbed his shin. One minute after the pain was gone, guess what he did? He ran again with the same socks slippery. My son isn't the only person to keep going back to the shoal. It's, it's me. It's us. Yes, I'm still struggling through my shoal in various forms, oftentimes coming back in the form of the chronic procrastination and other times in 
different idolatries. There really wasn't something like better methods that gave me hope. Never worked. It might seem like it works instantly. No, but it wasn't my trying harder mentality that finally kicked in. It was the peace of God that showed me the way. It was peace of God through Jesus. How he mourned for me to turn my mourning into dancing. It was the cross. And it was how that Savior, ever more graciously, forms a union with me, a wretched sinner like me, to abandon my old self, which still wants to rely on idols, and wear my new self that he already has clothed me with. It is the daily realization of that grace and mercy that empowers me. The essential realization that it really isn't I who drive the steering wheel, but it is God who is in control. To put my faith in Christ. That's my hope. That's your hope from Shoal. That doesn't, Shoal doesn't scare us anymore. Cycle of death does not kill us anymore because of our hope, which is in the Lord. By His sufficiency, by His perfection in His time, we are getting closer to God. That's what leads us to praise like David. And praise God also all the more that that's how God blessed us to be a body of believers, not just one individual to another, just independently with Christ. And just all left by yourself and saying, what do I do now? No, we're called to be a body of believers. He has blessed us into that church body of Christ. That's how he amazingly and mysteriously, powerfully works in us. As we near the new year, let's ponder on our shul. What entangles us. And let's ponder on his deliverance, how that has worked already, that humbly allows us to meditate on his mercy, that allows us to once again have hope in that promise of mercy, promise of salvation, and allow us to cry out for help. God, I need you. Without you, I am nothing. I have nothing. Would you be blessed by that reality? to realize that vulnerability, that helplessness. Without Christ, we have nothing. Let us joyfully then praise God as the psalmist did in verse 11 and 12. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Amen. Let's pray. Here at Renewal, after we hear God's word, we take time um, to pray to God on our own. And I'll lead us into a couple of prayer topics. And perhaps first we can ask God to reveal to us if there are any, there's any arrogance in the way that we see our lives. And when we do experience 
frustrations and failures, it's the first thing that we think is, you know, if I do try a little harder or if I do something differently this time, I can succeed. I can be a better father. I can be a more successful worker. Is that the kind of thinking that you and I have? Or are you in the show where your immediate needs, your comfort, the things that just give you instant pleasure, is that the idolatry of your life? Where you rather choose that over Christ himself, over honoring him. Those are the kinds of shoals that we live in. Let's ask God, God, reveal these things to us. Help us to not have this arrogant faith, to not quickly turn to these temporary pleasures, but to turn to you alone. Let's pray that in our hearts.